verses 1 through 15. And so if you're going to use the Pew Bible, that's on page 801. So that's Malachi 1, 1 through 5. And in the Pew Bible, it's page 801. I'd like to take us to God now as we pray. Father, we thank you for this time that we can hear of how you've used some of us to go out and proclaim Christ to the Native American women, how you are changing people through the gospel. We thank you for that. We thank you for the good work you have done and I am sure will continue to do. Would you help us to be faithful, a church that loves to share Christ with everyone we know? Would you help us now as we come to your word, as we, we receive it? Would you give us ears to hear and hearts that long to obey you because you have changed us? It's in Christ's name we pray, amen. So Malachi, right? Uh, Stephen is preaching through Luke. And I plan on the next six times, including today, when I'm before you, to uh, preach from Malachi. Just going straight through the book of Malachi. And it is, it's broken up into six divisions, you might call arguments or accusations. And it begins in verse 1, very clearly. It says, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. So we see God is speaking to his people his people Israel, and he's speaking through this prophet named Malachi. And Malachi's name actually means my messenger. So this is God's messenger, bringing God's message to God's people. And this word oracle, it it actually literally means burden. Some of you may uh, be reading from the King James Version. It says, the burden of the word of the Lord. And I think in many ways, that's very applicable to this message that Malachi is bringing to them. It's his burden, but as I bring you God's word from Malachi, to me it's also a bit of a burden, right? It's a weighty, a heavy task to preach God's word. It's a great responsibility. But it's also a burden because I think like Malachi, I want so bad for us to hear from God through it. Because I think if we understand this book rightly, It will change the way that we view him. It will change our understanding of his love for us. And I think it will change the way that we respond to him in worship. Here when we gather, but even every single day of our life. If we understand rightly this message from God. It applies to us in so many ways. And so we'll see over the coming weeks that there are six arguments or accusations God has against his covenant people. These people fail to see their own laziness in their worship of God, and because they have a, a view that's very small of God, it leads to little worship of God. They have a small view of God's love, which leads them to a little view of God and very little worship of God. And so I think, in a lot of ways, we can even empathize with the Israelites at this time. And Malachi's writing at a time, his contemporaries would be Ezra and Nehemiah. I think he's, he's coming after Ezra as far as timeline. He's coming after Ezra 
but before the second governorship of Nehemiah. And so he's writing this book. In 515, the temple had already been rebuilt after they've come back from exile in Babylon. And now it's about 450 BC, I think. And there's been a couple of different waves of Israelites, up to about 50,000 that have made their way back to Jerusalem from Babylon. So it's been about 50, or it's sorry, it's been about 60, 70 years since the, the second temple has been rebuilt and now where we find Malachi. And these Israelites, they have, they have succumbed to lethargy and laxity and leniency in spiritual matters. And Israel's not delighting in their God. They're not worshiping Him with their whole heart. And perhaps even today, you might not be delighting in God with your whole heart. It could be because of a sick loved one or difficulty at work or a wayward child. But God confronts them with this message through Malachi. And I pray that God confronts us with the same message. And this is a good book. It's a great book because God just oozes out of this book. Even in only 55 short verses, we see 47 of them are personal addresses from God to his people. And 61 times God refers to himself in just 55 verses. So if if we could just take these verses and distill them down into what we learn about God, we would see this. We see God loves his people. He promises to keep loving them, that he is their father, their master and creator, that he is a God of justice, that he does not ever change. We see that he is the great king and that he is the Lord Almighty. But we will also see that God's people are quite different. We'll see that they forget his love. They forget that he is this powerful God who has many promises for his people. We'll see that they're giving God their second best in all sorts of ways. Their religious leaders are morally lax, theologically liberal, and also corrupt. We'll see that the people themselves are are sexual, their sexual immorality or morality isn't what it should be. And we see they're doubting God is even worth serving. So Malachi's aim in this whole book, I think, is to expose this lax religion so that God's people would worship God supremely. And so the first thing that begins this letter The first thing God says to them is, I love you. So as we read in just a moment, I want us to see three things. First, that God's love is his choice. God's love is always faithful. And God's love produces worshipers. So would you follow along with me as I read? We'll begin in verse 1. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet, I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to the jackals of the desert. If Edom says we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says they may build, 
But I will tear down and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry. Your own eyes shall see this and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. So as Malachi begins this letter, we see that this is this has this foundation of love or this backdrop of love permeates the whole book. So with this in mind, we see in verses 2 and 3 that God's love is His choice. Right? It begins, I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but have hated Esau. So we, we see this exchange, right? This back and forth. God says, Israel, I have loved you. This is great, right? God loves them. And this love, it, it has this past tense of, I have loved you, but it's not just that. It's, I still continue to love you. So there's this intimacy, this closeness of relationship that's not experienced by anyone else other than God's people. God's love is, is meant to cause Israel to return to Him, to fear Him, to submit, to worship Him wholeheartedly with everything that they are. Sounds like something really great. But how does Israel respond? They say, how have you loved us? Right? This is not a, a genuine reply of, would, would you show me how you love me? It's kind of like the bratty kid saying, yeah, you love me, prove it. Show me you've loved me. Because I don't believe it. I think they're doing this because they're looking around for ease and prosperity. And they're keeping a record of their difficulties. Right? Just a little more than a, a hundred years ago, Babylon comes in, ransacks and destroys Jerusalem. They destroy the temple. And then when they're finally allowed to go back home, they rebuild the temple in 515 and, and they compare it to what was before. The second temple lacks all the grandeur of Solomon's temple. And it saddens them. And, and they're still currently, even though they're back in their, their city of Jerusalem, they're still under Persian rule. And so they're looking at their circumstances and they're saying, yeah, God, you love us? Prove it. How have you done this? And God's answer is this. Is not Esau Jacob's brother? And then you might be thinking, well, what in the world is he getting at, right? If somebody says, prove your love to me, you're probably not going to be talking like this. You're probably going to say, yeah, well, guess what? I did this for you. Do you remember that time where I had to give something up and I came and served you? God could have even said to Israel, hey, do you remember the time I delivered you from slavery in Egypt? I wiped out Egypt's armies when they chased after you. I delivered you through the Red Sea. I took you through the Jordan River. I even took you to the promised land. He doesn't do that. That's not his approach. And so I think this question is the key to our understanding God's love. Because the obvious answer is, was not Esau Jacob's brother? The obvious answer is yes, of course. 
He was. They had the same parents. They were brothers. But not only were they brothers, they were twin brothers. And according to the culture, Esau is the firstborn. Should have received the greater right from his father. He should have been the favored son. And so God's point here is that God chose Jacob, not Esau. It could have just been just as easy that God chose Esau, but he didn't. He doesn't look at these two and and say, this one's going to become something great. And this one, he's going to be a failure. He didn't choose based on what they would become. Because actually, Jacob was this scoundrel, this liar, and his name even means he cheats. Right? So it's not that God's saying, hey, let me look at their lives and which one's going to choose me. He's saying, I am choosing Jacob over Esau. And even more, he does this before they're even born, before they had the opportunity to do good or evil. So God's love is unconditional. Some will even say it's gratuitous. It's uncalled for or unwarranted love. God says, you didn't do anything for my love, Jacob, but I gave it to you. I put my love on you. Jacob was not loved because he was lovable. He's not loved because he was better than Esau. It was simply that God chose Jacob. And we see this in the beauty of adoption too. You don't adopt a child because, man, one day they they might be this perfect physical specimen and play sports and do a lot of good for me, or they've got a great mind and therefore I'm going to choose them. Right? When you adopt... You say, this child is in need. I want to give my love to this child. I want to give all of myself to this child. And that's why you adopt. You don't wait till they become 18 and you say, yeah, you've done some good stuff. I'll adopt you now. You bestow your love upon that kid, upon that child. But I do understand this is not easy. Some of you may even be struggling to think about this idea that God's choosing to love some, but not all. It is a struggle. And and you might have lots of questions about, well, how is God just and how is God fair if he does this? And Malachi doesn't go into this this long argument of why God's chosen to love. He gives us God's perspective. He, t- he shows us that neither one of them deserve anything from God other than destruction because they are rebellious. So he says, God sees both of them as the same, yet he chose to show mercy and grace to Jacob. So instead of God being this angry uh, God who, who, who loves some and, and utterly hates others because of something he foresees in their future... He is a gracious God that says, all of you deserve my judgment. But I'm going to show mercy to Jacob. This is the beauty of our God. This is the love of our God. And if we're not careful, we will look at life and circumstances to measure God's love 
for us. We may look at our health or our money or our jobs or even our children. But this is not how we are to measure God's love. So if that's how we don't measure it, how do we measure God's love? We see that God says, I've loved you. I've given you my love. I've put it upon you. It's my gift to you. Like Jacob, you did nothing at all to deserve to earn God's love. God gave it to you. He placed it upon you. And so church, think about this. You and I who have God's love, it ought to put a song of joy in our hearts. But it also ought to humble us because there's nothing good about us. That God said, I'm giving you my love. God's love is this great leveling field. There's nothing good about any of us before our God. But yet he bestowed his love on us. It humbles us. It ought to produce in us a great love, a a warm affection. That God loves you and chose you. But God's love is also, it's always faithful. Right? God's love is always faithful. We see Israel doubts God's love and they doubt his faithfulness. I could even imagine hearing Israel saying something like this. How can God love us when our temple was destroyed, our nation was devastated, and then we come back and it's nothing even close to what it used to be? We're still under rule by some foreign country. This doesn't work with my understanding of love, right? I could imagine Israel saying that. Because many times we show our love by giving flowers or gifts at someone's birthday or or Christmas. But God doesn't tell his people that he loves them this way. Notice in verses 3 and 4, God says, I have laid waste his hill country, referring to Edom, uh, to the Edomites, to Jacob, or sorry, to Esau. He says, I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to the de- jackals of the desert. If Edom says we have shattered, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins. The Lord of hosts says they will build, but I will tear down and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. So again, God doesn't recount all the great things He's going to do for them. He doesn't say, I'm going to give you these gifts and do these things for you. But He contrasts His love for Israel with His destruction for Edom. God chose Israel to be loved and He is destroying and will bring to desolation Edom. Even if Edom tries to rebuild, God says, I'll destroy, I will frustrate their efforts. I will make their efforts futile because God's against them. So God shows his love and his faithfulness to Israel by opposing their, their, their enemies, the Edomites. But notice this. God's opposition is not just at the time that Malachi speaking to the Israelites. He says at the end of verse 4, the Lord of hosts says, They may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. 
right? God is in this covenant with Israel, initiated, started by his love for them. And God will forever oppose Israel's enemies because ultimately they're his enemies. So Edom will be forever opposed by God. And and I could even hear Israel saying, oh, this is awesome. Great. Wow. Oh, Lord. God, he loves us and he's against our enemies. God, thank you for loving us. Thank you for loving us forever. That's not necessarily their response, though. But I do think there's something for us to learn from this. If you're here today and you don't know Christ, I want you to hear from this passage that God will judge those who don't repent. God will judge those who don't repent and believe in Christ. And you can be God's recipient of love through faith in Christ. And so even as I was preparing to preach, my prayer has been for those who are here that may not know Christ, my prayer is that this would not be an aroma of death to you, that it would not turn you off, but instead it would be an aroma of life. That you would hear there is a God who loves. That you would hear that because your rebellion deserves separation from God forever, that you wouldn't, your ears wouldn't just close right there. But that God would give you ears to hear there is a glorious part to this bad news. And that that is God does not leave you there if you would turn from your sin and repent and believe in Christ. He sent Christ, the only one not deserving this eternal wrath. He sent him so that Christ might live a sinless life and die on the cross that you might have have salvation in him. That you might turn from sin and that you might believe in God. But also this has great significance for you and I who are in Christ today. It shows us that God loves us and he will defeat our enemies, namely sin. God will defeat sin for us. He has defeated sin in the cross of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. But also, church, know that God has put his love upon you. But there's someone else who took that wrath, that judgment you deserve. This is the love of God for you. He placed his love upon you. But he didn't just say, no one's going to suffer. He said, Christ will suffer. So you and I who are recipients of this love and not this wrath, I, I pray that you would see God's love for you and that you would see it's always faithful, but that it would also produce in you a, a, a warm affection for our God, that it would produce in you a heart that worships. We see this in verse 5, that God's love produces worshipers. And the reason he puts his love upon Jacob is to glorify himself by producing worshipers. God loves Jacob, that Jacob would worship him. God loves Israel, that Israel might worship him. Read verse 5 with me. Your own eyes shall see this. You shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. 
So God has loved Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, not because he had to, but because he wanted to. He wanted to create a people for himself that would love him forever, that would worship him with great joy in their hearts. And we will see over the, over the coming sermons through this book that we will see Israel is ungrateful because they don't realize God's love for them. They worship him with half-hearted, lukewarm devotion. God wants to remind Israel of his love for them. He wants to show them the, the stark contrast between how his love is on display because he loved them for no other reason than he chose them to the contrast between Israel and Edom. And so God says, I will bring judgment and destruction upon Edom and all who don't love me. But Israel, when you see this, when you understand this, you will respond with words of worship crying out, great is our Lord in the entire earth. Great is our God for his salvation and his judgment. Thank you, Father, for showing mercy and grace to us, your people. And so the question for us, church, is do you respond in worship to our great God who has loved us? Do you have an unfading and undistracted worship of God? Are you filled with humility because God has bestowed his love upon you? Do you rejoice in this intimate relationship with God who is the creator and the sustainer of all of life? Or do you like Israel? Do you question God's love because of hardship, because of difficulty in life? So if you question his love, I encourage you, let's look to him in this book. Let's look to his always faithful love. Let us rejoice and worship God for no other reason than in that he has put his love upon us that he still loves us in Christ, that his love in Christ is your victory over sin. So church, let us worship him alone. Let us worship God and let us take out this gospel everywhere we go that we may hear among the nations. Great is our Lord in all the earth because they see his love for him, for them. Would you pray with me now? Father, we thank you for your great love. We know we have done absolutely nothing deserving of your love. You look at our, our, our best deeds and they're but filthy rags. We ask that you would help us to grow in our understanding of your love for us. That it was gratuitous. It was not owed to us. We did nothing deserving of your love. But that you, you gave it to us. You placed it upon us. You said, I will love you. We thank you for your grace and your mercy. We ask that it would produce in our hearts 
a great love and a great devotion, uh, a, a worship of you that says there is none other in my life worthy of my worship that we would, our hearts would be inflamed with a deep, hot affection and love for you. Would you do this good work in us today? It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.